Hi, Carol. Hey, we are live. You're watching Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matthew Kressel. I host a series with Ellen Datlow. Tonight's guests are Nalo Hopkinson and Bruce McAllister. Uh, we're going to start in about 15 minutes. Right now, we're just going to hang out. So uh, stick around, pull up a chair, pull up a drink, and uh, thanks for joining us. So, uh, homemade ginger beer. There what are you go. drinking there? Oh, is that, is that ginger beer? Is that ginger beer? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's okay. strong. Is it homemade? Yeah. Oh, because oh, yeah. Really, um, yeah. don't, don't bring it to a Zoom meeting unless you can share it with everybody. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. we're, we're in the business of imagining such things. So. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. The virtual the, ginger, beer. The ginger The great gingerbread uh, beer yeah. novel. <laughs> yes. I have, I have um, a syrup for ginger beer. Mm, yes. That, you know, that I could make after I, I'm drinking my seltzer with, I forget, orange essence <laughs> or whatever the hell it is. Well, nice. I started making it with um, white wine yeast, which oh. is a really happy yeast. It doesn't even stop fermenting when you put it in the fridge. That's supposed to stop the fermentation. Oh. Wow. It's still oh, going. Wow. Oh, so is it yours? It's liquor? Yours. No, not at all. I mean, okay. it'll have a little bit because yeast produces a tiny amount of alcohol, but yeah. it's, not, it's not alcoholic. So, so no. how exactly do you make it? Um, you, the simple way is distilled water, um, ginger, yeast, and uh, sugar in the blender, pour it into the distilled water and let it steep for two or three days or until the bottle looks like it's going to explode. Then you strain it, bottle it if you're going to do that, um, and let it sit another couple of days. But here in the desert, it's so warm that I only need to do it once. I don't need to do the double fermentation. And then it gets fizzy. And at that point, I stick it in bottles and stick it in the fridge. Mm. It's really simple. So what gives it that orange color? It's um, it's the ginger. Mm. The, there's a lot of, ginger produces a lot of starch, which I didn't know until I stayed mm, okay. at home. And the starch gets stirred up from the bottom. It looks um, like a hazy IPA. I drink a lot of those. <laughs> yes. And they have exactly the same That's color. So I was like, yeah. That looks like a really hazy nice IPA. Perfect. And then, I, and then yeah. I was like, oh, no, it's just orange juice. But no, <laughs> Yeah. I yeah. tell my undergrads, really, no beer and ginger beer. Right. <laughs> so, Jay, I'm very healthy. Probably great for your immune system, though. Yeah. 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 So. I love ginger. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I do too. I'm to drinking a kid. sour ale. Oh, um, like ale more, too. Morbid curiosity. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's cool. It's good. It's uh, it's tart. So is this ginger beer. It didn't start out that way, but the little yeasts have eaten all the sugar. I've never made my own beer. I have a friend uh, who does that, uh, Mike DeLuca. He's going to be reading for us in a while, a few months. And uh, his beer is good. This beer is good. Uh, we, you know, I'm in an apartment in in New York City, so I don't think. I mean, we probably could get a small keg in here, but uh, you know, my wife's shaking her head now. <laughs> my but, my mom, when they lived in Connecticut, used to make wine, and uh, she would put it under the sink to, you know, do its thing. And I remember one 
two incidents. My dad was still a drinking man at that time when he came home from university and he still, he wasn't done yet. So he, he opened the new, the new wine, had such a headache the next day. And then there was the day that the orange wine exploded under the sink. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nothing like homemade things. Yes. Yeah, for surprising you. Hi, Amy. Hi, folks. Thanks for joining us. So, what do you what are you guys going to be reading from tonight? I'm going to read two very very short stories, both of them from magazine of fantasy and science fiction in the new millennium. Mm -hmm. One science, one science fiction, and one fantasy. And the fantasy short short is the actually the one of the two prologues to the my last novel, that little fix fix up or whatever it's called. A, yeah. a series series of stories connected, mm -hmm. and um, that's about it. Yeah, and that should probably take me. Three minutes. Three minutes. Great. Yes. Now I was going to have to. Oh, no. You're going to have to perform many, many things. You're going to have to do the um, the ginger beer dance as well as the dramatic reading from the graphic novel. As well. Oh, God. And the recipe of the ginger beer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm reading from an anthology that just came out. Um, and uh, nowadays, no. trying to describe my stories is either science fiction or fantasy is a bit of a challenge. <laughs> it's it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. What anthology? <coughs> Excuse me. It's called Planet City, and it's part of a multimedia um, project by a speculative architect. Hmm. Um, and hmm. he's he's doing it for a triennial. There's a film that goes along with it. I'm going to, part of how I'm using up my 20 minutes is to talk some background about the anthology. So I'm very <laughs> curious about then. What's a speculative architect? Um, it's not so much about building buildings as looking at the um, future built environments. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm. so it's a series. Yeah. By the way, you can see people commenting if you have the um, comment. Oh. I don't, let's see. Oh, comment. Oh, Rick, oh, there uh, we are. Rick always calls it a mosaic novel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rick Bose was talking about. Um, yeah. Because well, when you said like a speculative architect, it just, I don't know, I, I had all these visions in my head of like fantastic cities and, you know, but it, yeah. <laughs> Linda. Yeah, makes yeah. sense. Hi, Linda. Hi, Linda. Hi, Linda. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We're going to uh, hang out and chat for a little while before we get started, just to let people filter into the room. So um, Ellen and I are looking at right now October uh, going back to the bar. So All right, Good. yeah, we'll see. We'll see. That's what we're planning. Holding on it, yeah. Um, you know, in person. I have to figure out what we're going to do about the the uh, the videos. Like, I don't know if I'm going to. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it live because it, it'll be too chaotic with the breaks that we have. I might just um, 
film it and then edit it and How do it. Film it. I'd put like my camera on the side on a little tripod and record it. Okay. Yeah. That's a pain in the neck, but okay. I mean, then, then you would put it on the site or something. I mean, you wouldn't edit yeah, it. Yeah, like, like uh, I could still upload it to YouTube, but then it would just be a little bit less, you know, mm -hmm. live. Managed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> More speculative. More yes. Yes, it's speculative. Yes, you're supposed to come here. It would be unlive. <laughs> yeah. We want Linda. We want Linda. You want to commute from Arizona. I know we're we're still. I, I mean, we still want to make it accessible for people. Obviously, not in New York. I mean, we always have the podcast, and we always will. Yeah. Um, but now that we're doing video, I want to do more video as well. So yeah, I mean, what we've been trying. I mean, once we figured out it was going to be closed down for a while, we decided we should try to get people who can't usually make it to New York. Right. Yeah. So I mean, like really far away, you know. It's like so we got Usman, Pakistan, and we got Lauren Bukis from South Africa. Got um, Australia, very, very cool. Got Australia, yeah, and um, UK, England, UK. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's a really great opportunity to do that. Although it's bad timing for some people. I think for Usman, it was like what three in the morning or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Here's a very important from from Gay Terry. Can we still wear our PJs? Yes, you can. New York City, you can always wear PJs. Yeah. <laughs> wear whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Matt S. I'm not sure who you are, but okay. <laughs> yeah, it looks like people want the, want the video to continue. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah. We can do I, I want to like film the bar because I, I think you know the, the issue I think is doing it live is that we we take instead of taking a five minute break we take a 15 minute break and then right. you know I'm not going to leave the camera running for that you know no. people are getting drinks at the bar to be a lot of noise right um, so I you know like I said just if I would just record the readings I cover and then <laughs> splice it into a little video it might work mm -hmm. I guess yeah yeah we'll but see well, I mean, couldn't you just shut it off in between yeah. breaks and then? Yeah, I don't know if you can do that with a live stream, like pause it. Oh, oh I don't know. Yeah, because then there'd just be a gap in it, right? Well, if you edit it, splice it together afterwards, I don't know. You know, part one, part two. But then yeah. it wouldn't be live if I'm editing it afterwards. No, no. Oh, that's right. Duh. Um, yeah. Well, no, you edit it after the fact when it's finished. I mean, you record the first half shut it off, and then just start recording the second half live. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do, but I wouldn't release the video until like right. a day well, or two later. But what I'm saying that you could still video it live so people could do a live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. That's oh, what I'm sorry. saying. Yeah. <laughs> Sophie's going. You'll see Sophie go by, maybe. Yeah. Where is Sophie? Is she going? Where are you? I'm a rocking chair, which is not a good place. <laughs> no. <laughs> Look, it's stepped on. Yep, there she goes. <laughs> little one. <laughs> She's uh, yes, Amy, yes, I'm, I could ask Terrence um, about that. I'm uh, I'm sure he has a lot of suggestions. Yeah, I, that's good. I would, mm. Well, this is this is happening more and more that people who who can't well, right, who can't COVID couldn't make it physically right. to the meetings, whatever yeah. the meetings are, now they're Zooming and now they want to continue, right, mm. to be doing it remotely. Yes, so, yeah. and we want them to. Like, we definitely want them there. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, people who are from other places, you know, would like to come by and see it live. Yeah. Great opportunity. Yeah. And I noticed um, with cons, a lot of people who don't attend cons because they've got social anxiety issues mm -hmm. can now go to cons this way. Exactly. Sort of choose their environments to have more control over it. And it's been so cool to see people I wouldn't normally see at a con. That's right. I wonder if there'll be some continue both both worlds. Both I was going to say if there's some kind of hybrid way, you know, maybe you could still have in person, but you could say, look, you know, we're, you know, this panel is going to be in person and Zoom. We're going to have it up I think, on the. Floor. I think it's going to have to happen. Yeah, both are yeah. going to have to. You're right, not a hybrid. Yeah. Well, the schools are having to figure it out because when we go back live, yeah, right. it's going to be combined. I have no idea how you manage a classroom like that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, my wife does it. What they do is they basically just, she goes into work half the day and, and comes home for half the day for the remote stuff because the signal in the school is just not good enough to do. Uh, well, someone told me, I don't remember who, that they had to do it partly in person. And I think it was Jim Blaylock saying, yes, they have classes in person and at the same time you're Zooming, which seems horrible. If you have a few students and you have to like, interact with all of them with the ones on the on video and the ones in person at the same time sounds really horrible it's <laughs> I'm, 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 yeah. I'm if i had a feed that everybody could see mm -hmm. yes. people in the classroom right. me and people outside right. the classroom then i could manage it because that's kind yeah, of like some of the tech isn't quite there yet i mean this is you know this the future isn't here yet well who and, would that that, doing this for a year zooming and stuff you know I mean, yeah, but sometimes it's a matter of, I mean, I, I know a lot of writers who, like me, kind of evaluate manuscripts forwards and backwards in a kind of circular way. And that's, mm -hmm. I don't know, eight foot computer screen. I mean, mm -hmm. voice scrolling something from my, the movie Minority Report. I don't know what it would take, but it's not here yet. Mm -hmm. Or at least we can't afford it. Right. Yeah. 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 So you're saying as opposed to what, laying it out on a table? Is that what you mean? You mean editing? No, what did you mean? Like they needed a screen wide to look at the manuscript. I didn't quite catch that. Oh, <clears throat> scrolling yeah. right, on a screen. A lot, of, a lot of people don't do that. That's not what they do. They, they still, I know lots of, and granted it can sound like old farts, but, but it's people who, they would rather have a printout and be able to read oh, yeah. and backwards. It's extrapolated associative reading part of the evaluation. IBM called it um, um, expertise wetware. Uh -huh. yeah. things. And it's, it's just hard to do. And it, you know, I, I think Apple's not the future of desktops <laughs> isn't there. So um, I know that, and I, I know with my, you know, coaching and, consulting clients, I'll say, I need, you know, I'm going to print it out. Why do you have to print it out? Why can't you read it on the screen? And mm, can't do it. Mm -hmm. You read that. Oh, well, I do sometimes read diagonally down from left to right. But oh, yeah. No, no. They're scanning. Yeah. And as, as we get older and wiser, that kind of jumping page to page through it, hitting the end, going back to the beginning, 
and it's a professional read. You kind of don't want to admit it to your clients, right? That that's how you read, but it works. It's, you know, why you can be, it, it do it well. Well, see, that's why I have PDF files when I'm reading anything, because I yeah. can't go back. You can't go back in a PDF. It's really hard to go back and forth. That's what I mean. This is unless you're not here yet. There are some PDF, I guess, files that can, but most people don't have them yet. Yeah. You know, you go back and forth from the table of contents to the where you are, but it's still you can't like page back. You have to like know exactly where you're going, which is not great for. Mm. Well, and that might just be the software you're using, but but yeah, I mean, definitely, I feel because you know I obviously was born before, you know, e-readers were a thing. And, you know, I find that I retain a lot more when I'm reading paper than I do on the e-reader. Yes. And what they see is that some of that's the flicker of the screen. You know how it presents to me the epilepsy? It's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, that's why you can't proofread on a screen. It's really difficult for a lot of people. Terrible for your eyes because, uh, I mean, yeah. some of the, the new monitors are better with this, but the literally tiny subtle flickering causes your eyes to refocus. That's I mean, right. I know that my eyes are burning if I'm online reading a lot. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle of editing a novella online um, and finding it easier than I thought. And I decided to use track chain. I'm still the old fashioned person who wants to copy and paste into my email. You know that, Matt. And finally, with the novella, it's like, fuck this. <laughs> and after page 17, I said, Matt, it, not you, Matt, the other Matt. I'm sorry, I'm editing. I said, would you mind if I just do the track changes? I can't do this. I mean, I can't do this 190 pages. I can't do this. Yeah. Yeah. I started just doing it online and it's actually easier, but it's not great on my eyes. I mean, after a while, my eyes start burning. Amelie's um, my wife and she's re retired, but retired into her third act of life, right? In other words, now we've got another 30 years and she's in the field of um, medical Qigong and medical Tai Chi. And, but she also is a um, former dancer. And so she's taking a flamenco class and the flamenco, teacher is trying to do people who are present as well as zoomers it's oh, really God. difficult see and that's what isn't Nalo, it's not what you're talking about dancing on zoom if you have to teach it on zoom right yeah i mean it, no it's murder i mean it's been the killer of dance departments through yes through the yeah. there is a, a company uh, called steezy they're do i'm not sure how the technology works but um you can download their workshops and switch between seeing the front of the yeah. choreographer and the back, oh. which is really yeah. helpful for those of us who turn around. Yeah. And get Again, <laughs> it's so it's like mechanical. It's like it's not quite here. And then about the time that we may not need it as much, there'll be less pressure. In other words, we won't get the tang that we thought the military and NASA would come up with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we probably should start. Maybe we, yeah, we probably should start. This again after, or when we have. Okay, yeah, it's about twelve after. So, uh, if you're uh, just joining us, you're watching Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Uh, I'm Matthew Kressel. I co-host a series with Ellen Datlow. It's a speculative fiction uh, reading series that um, is held on the third Wednesday of every month. This is our fourteenth month doing it uh, on YouTube on a live stream as opposed to in person. Uh, <laughs> For obvious reasons, um, if you're watching this, you know, 100 years from now, it was a pandemic, and we we all had the lockdown. 
Um, but yeah, so uh, it's actually, um, did, did we talk about, I can't remember if we did this before or after we went live, but we were just talking about all the, all the people we had from all over the globe. And, uh, you know, we, we basically got guests uh, who couldn't normally attend, uh, come to New York City. So we had uh, Usman Malik from Pakistan. We had Lauren Bukes from South Africa, uh, Karen Warren from Australia. Um, from England. Yeah, from the UK. And uh, yeah, so we've been having people from all over. Um, right now, it's it's still a little bit of a question mark, but we're hoping to be back in the bar in October. That's the date we chose. Seems right now doable, but we'll see. You know, we're keeping an eye on things. Uh, but yeah, so the, the Fantastic Fiction Reading Series um, has been going on since the late uh, 90s. It started by uh, Alice Turner, Terry Bisson, and um, several different hosts over the years, uh, including uh, Gavin Grant. Um, and um, Ellen and I have been doing it together for about 12 years or so. Ellen has been doing it a little bit longer than I have. Um, the bar itself is always free uh, to get in. There's never a cover charge. But um, all, we, all we ask is um, that you buy a drink hard or soft. So obviously we're not in the bar. The bar itself, because of the the uh, shutdown, has been closed. Although actually, I think they might be open at limited capacity now. But um, we want to we want to support the bar and keep them going. Actually, no wait, this one. So there's the link there. So if you if you can, uh, if you can afford a the cost of a of a drink, uh, it would be great if you can donate to the KGB bar to keep it going. It's like really uh, a great a great bar in the in the East Village of Manhattan. Um, they've been hosting us forever for 20 something years. So, uh, and then the series itself, a fantastic fiction. Um, we um, give the guests a, a stipend. We, um, when we were meeting in person, we would take them out to dinner. Um, we tip the bartenders. We, we still give money to the bar. Uh, and um, the, it also costs us a little bit of money to, uh, you know, pay for the streaming services. So if, again, if you can afford to support us, that would be fantastic. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh, some people, I'm not gonna mention them, but some people who are watching uh, tonight uh, have been uh, donating to us regularly and really, really appreciate that. Thank you very much. You know who you are. Um, and uh, if you do plan to donate again, thank you very much. Uh, so yeah. Um, what's that? But don't feel you have to. Don't feel you have to. No, totally. If you just want to watch, totally fine with us. Um, so yeah, we're excited about uh, tonight's guests, uh, Nalo Hopkinson and Bruce McAllister. And I love to just use this while I can. <laughs> here's, here's their book covers. Uh, they have more books than these, but we can only fit uh, uh, one cover each at the moment. But uh, yeah, so I'm going to, um, if you look at the... Uh, the YouTube link, uh, the YouTube info down below, you'll see links to, to buy their books and uh, their bios. Um, but yeah, so our first reader is going to be Bruce McAllister. Oh, wait, one more thing, sorry. We're gonna do a Q&A after the reading. So Bruce is gonna read, Nalo's gonna read, and then we're gonna do a Q&A with both authors. So if you have questions, I know a lot of you watching now have seen this before, but you can type your questions in the Google Live chat and then well, you can you can ask them anything. So we'll, we're going to uh, do that at the end of the readings. 
Uh, Bruce McAllister has been writing science fiction, fantasy, and horror for some decades. He began as an SF writer, but these days writes more fantasy of the uncanny kind. His most recent novel is a little thing called The Village Sang to the Sea, a memoir of magic. The Hugo nominee short story Kin launched the new podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. Here's Bruce McAllister. Thank you. And by the way, thanks for all the comments. They're really wonderful. And thank you, Amy, for the Adobe suggestion. What I'd like to do is read two very short stories, uh, both of them from Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, and both of them from the new millennium. And first one is called Breath. <coughs> I went out to the islands to fish that day. It was a blustery autumn one, but beautiful. The islands postcard perfect and a break from this digital engineered world we live in. Even if I didn't catch anything, it would be a pleasant afternoon. It was a half day charter boat and those aboard to fish, just a handful of us were strangers to one another, but friendly enough. Two young couples from Japan who'd never fished before, an awkward father with his son for the weekend, two old fishermen who stayed by themselves and complained as old fishermen often do and a bright-eyed teenager, a crew member, who hung out with us and rigged our lines if we needed him to. Everyone wanted to catch something. We were told we could have the ship's crew clean and fillet what we caught, or we could take it home to do with it whatever we wanted. One of the old fishermen and the awkward father were the first to catch the mer children, but I couldn't see the action well. I was attending to my line and didn't want to lose my place at the gunnel by going over to look. The Mer children screamed, that I could hear. They did it the instant they hit the air. That and the decompression as they were reeled in was what bothered them, not the hooks, or not as much. They thrashed just like fish on, with their twin tails on the wet deck. I could hear that too. I caught glimpses of an eye that had popped from being reeled up too quickly and a cheek torn by a hook, blood. The old fisherman and the father were doing what fishermen do. I caught the next merchild myself. It didn't fight much, but reeling it in slowly so as not to damage it from the reef 450 feet down took a long time. I could see looking their way that the old fisherman knew what I was trying to do and felt contempt. I was trying to avoid hurting the thing. I was trying to keep it from swallowing the hook. They knew. The first thing I saw was the flash of its tails, then its head, like a human infant's, born from the sea and taking its first breath, pulled into the world of air. It was heavy, and I knew it might break the line once I had it free of the water. But when the teenager, the crew member, ran up with a gaff, I said no. He looked confused but kept smiling. You're going to lose it. It's a 30-pounder. I know. You don't care if you lose it? Yes, I do. Do you have a net? Sure. Could you get it? He'd lost his smile, but he came back with a long pole net. You're going to have to reel it up the first five feet, he said. The boat was riding high. I can't reach that far. I understand, I said. I reeled carefully. I could see Tara's face back at the house. Bring one home, Dave. I'd nodded, a promise without saying it, and she turned so I couldn't see her crying. I didn't lose it. It mewled and gasped, trying to breathe, getting better at it. And when the teenager had lifted it up in the net, I pulled it out by its arms even before it was over the deck. 
The hook and the bait, a piece of squid, had kicked free, leaving its bottom lip torn and bleeding, though not too badly. Its hands had tried to get the hook free and were bleeding a little too. Don't take it out yet, the team said. It'll thrash, you'll lose it. When I saw, when he saw how I was holding the thing cradled in my arm, he took a step back. His eyes widened. He realized why I was there. Probably the first person he'd ever met with my reason for catching one or one who'd admit to it. I was holding it like an infant. The boy with the awkward father, the boy who'd asked me for help rigging his line when his father was stumbling over his own pole, was suddenly at my side, trying to touch the tails of the mere child and saying, you going to eat him? We're going to eat ours. There are too many of them, my dad says. You've got to thin them out or they'll kill all the endangered fish. That's what they say, isn't it? I answered. I'd heard it all before. Everyone had. Someone had introduced the Merkine to the California coast, an accidental release of 200 pods of them by a bioengineered pet company, Dream Pet or Mopet or Design Me. I couldn't remember, and the Channel Islands had become their feeding and breeding grounds, displacing the remaining seals and eating the smaller, threatened fish species the seals had never bothered with. Some weren't sure it had been an accident, more like a dumping. The Merkine, the Little Mermaid, and little merlad lines of dream pet the pretty swimmers from design me all those sentient products were hard to take care of and hadn't sold well and there were laws and a very expensive process covering the disposal of pets engineered from simian and cetacean genetic stock which is what the merkine were monkeys and porpoises with a gill system thrown in you could see it in their faces and hands and their hips and tails the intelligence in their eyes the awkward father was at my side too. He pulled his son back the first time I'd seen him touch the boy. The father also knew what I was doing. It's going to cost you a hell of a lot of money, he said sternly. Not really, I answered. You just have to know what you're doing. I was speaking on Tara's behalf as well as my own. She'd done all the research. She was an incredible researcher. We had enough money. We were professionals, both of us in well-paying AR fields and we'd save for five years. It may not work, the father was saying. There's not enough literature. They're pets, and they were dumped because of accelerated tumor growth or some other mortality stat, something. You want one at your house covered with tumors like a lab rat? He was angry, angry anger wearing a veil of caring. I wasn't sure why, except that when we're not sure what we're feeling, that can upset us, and we get angry. One of the old fishermen, the one now holding a burlap bag with the thing he'd caught, already filleted by a crew member, had the same anger in his eyes. I'm a doctor, the father added, an anesthesiologist. He wanted me to at least euthanize it at a vet's. At least that, he was telling me. As I walked to the parking structure, I looked at the thing writhing in my arms, the raspy skin slick with mucus from its mouth and nose, its tails and its back, the blue of Caribbean waters, its belly white as milk, and its moon face still full of panic as its mouth opened and closed, and its gills fluttered, trying to understand what was happening to it. In the car, I put it in the portable, aerated aquarium we bought for it, securing the contraption as well as I could in the back seat. I was afraid it might die on the 30-minute drive home, but it didn't. Its breathing had calmed, the gills moving rhythmically now, its mouth and nose and lungs not having to do the work. It was breathing water again. At the house, Tara was waiting for me at the curb. Her eyes were red, but she was smiling. I hadn't seen her smile like that in years, and wasn't that what this was about? 
the years of trying of the best and most expensive fertility treatments, of failed surrogacies and endless waits on adoption lists and still nothing. The special room we'd had built by our bedroom had cost money, sure, but it had kept us busy and hopeful and close for nearly two years. There had been others doing the same, couples in other cities in a chat room to share experiences, how to prepare its food, how to vary its diet without risk, how often to hold it each day, how to hold it, what was love to a simian or a cetacean, a body that felt like a parent's faces, touch, sounds, how was it different from human love? How was it the same? Tara checked the big aquarium's temperature, salinity, and other values and nodded. And standing on the stepladder, I let the child slip from my arms into the water. It sank for a moment and then, as its eyes calmed again and its mouth closed, the webbed hands began to paw at the water. The two beautiful tails began to move too, taking it away from us and then turning it around back toward us as it stared, a child's face lit bleeding just a little at the two faces watching it from the other side of the glass. Behind, my, behind me, Tara said something, the name we'd decided on perhaps, but it was lost in a sudden happy splashing. That's that. Just a second. Uh, are people there? Yeah, we're here. We mute. We were muted. We, uh, everybody's okay. clapping. Everybody's clapping. Okay. No, no, I wasn't waiting for clapping. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> yes, I yes, we're here. We're here. I had. We have you soloed, so everyone's muted, so you don't hear us coughing and and shuffling around. But yes, That's we're here. Okay. I'll I'll be here through Thursday. <laughs> okay. <All right>. Good. <laughs> Okay, this is um, this is the um, this is called the Seventh Daughter. Uh, again, it appeared in magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and it's one of the prologues to uh, the book that Matt mentioned, "The uh, Village Sang to the Sea: A Memoir of Magic." <clears throat> The American boy lived with his parents in a small villa, high on a hillside above a cove where young people danced at night, their voices rising through the olive trees to him as he fell asleep. Sometimes he did not know which was the real story, the Lugurian sea below him in the night where a poet had drowned long ago, the laughter and shouting below him that drown out the whispers of that sea and the muttering, mutterings of that poet. The boyish face he saw in the mirror when he dared to look. The things he made of clay and words that only he knew about. It didn't matter. It was real and yet it was not. But the question was always there as he fell asleep and woke. In the top drawers of his bedroom dresser with every color of modeling clay, he had made a world and knew its story. The seven daughters of Satan, he called it. He built, it he built carefully the valley, forest, and seven villages where the daughters of Satan, who abandoned them, had grown up. The village men were scared of the beautiful daughters because the men knew who they were. The daughters showed no dark gifts, no witches' skills or demonic tendencies, but the men of the villages felt it, the waiting, the waiting for him. The entire valley and the mountains that surrounded it waited. If you held your breath and stayed entirely still, you could even hear it, the ticking of God's great clock. The hour didn't matter. What mattered was that the ticking never stopped. 
The men heard it as they stared, hearts breaking, at seven daughters and did not stop, step toward them. The daughters did not understand. They could not hear the ticking. They did not know how the men wanted them. The daughters kept more and more to themselves and the men said less and less. A child might run up to one of them, say something, hand something to her, take something away, even play with her, but the adults never did. The daughters grew sullen, their white faces and their red lips once like seven sleeping beauties, but now like fading ghosts. He will return, the villagers whispered to themselves, inside their thatched house where the daughters had grown up and where they slept side by side on mats on a clay floor. They had a deaf nanny to watch over them. The nanny could not hear the ticking and was growing blinder as well. Each daughter had a dresser built years ago when the daughters were little by men from the villages. In each daughter's dresser, there were seven drawers, and in the top drawer, made of clay and fashioned by the nanny's son, who lived with them but slept in a separate room, was a replica of the village where the daughter was born. The villagers knew that late at night, little people of clay, homunculi, were brought to life by supernatural power and moved through the clay village in each drawer to entertain the lonely daughter there. One day the boy, who was not from this valley but knew its story, found the smallest and prettiest of the daughters and stood before her, big and gangly in his dark suit, his skin on fire from self-consciousness. She was, he saw, scared too. Are you my father? she asked. No, he answered. I am a boy. She nodded, smiled a little, and let him dance her across the cobbles of the village square to music that was like the humming of God. Soon every daughter was dancing and the clock stopped its ticking. <clears throat> when strains of 1950 songs like Diana and Heavenly Shades of Night and all the others reached the boy from that outdoor dance floor in the cove below his bedroom window, he lay in bed thinking of the boys and girls a few years older than he and flirting in another language, dancing. He would not get up. He would not turn on a light. He would listen to the songs until he fell asleep. As he slept, he dreamed long, adventurous dreams of strange places, heroes and creatures of legends, but also shorter dreams about hills covered with vipers and funerals of his relatives and a little boat in a storm sinking. It was these shorter dreams that came true. Why, he didn't know. It made no sense, but what it did in life. The longer dreams became stories he wrote in long head, and kept secret in, a drawer, in the drawer right below the seven daughters. The ones that came true, he never wrote down. It frightened him too. When he woke from his dreams, he went to school with his friends from the village or went down to the wharf by himself to find seashells among the fish in the nets or walked along the dirt road leading from his house past the walls with their brave green lizards to the Hotel Byron. One day his parents said it. That hotel is too new. It couldn't be where they lived. Who, the boy asked. Mary Shelley and her husband, Percy, they answered. The woman who wrote that book, the one about the monster, Frankenstein. Not long after, he would learn from someone that Percy, her husband, the poet, had drowned one stormy night in his little boat as he made his way from Viareggio up the coast back to this very village. When the boy was back in his own country and the dreams, the ones that came true, had stopped and he no longer wrote stories or made things of clay to put in drawers. He learned that that woman, Mary, had dreamed her dream, the one that had become her sad and terrible book in that fishing village too.
Often years later, when he was grown and had a wife and children, he would try to remember what had happened to the drawer in its mountains, valley, villages, and people of clay. The seven daughters of Satan, he had called it. This he could remember, but he could not remember what had happened to that clay. Did it matter? Were people, your wife, your children, what mattered? Then one night, as he lay beside his wife, she put her arm over him and whispered in the dark, thank you for setting us free. And he knew which story it was and how there would never be anything as real because love is what makes things real as this. Thank you. That was great. Both great. Yes. Oh no. Still weeping over the first one. <laughs> so, yeah, wow. Amy said it. It really went well with the um, background. Your background of the koi pond. Your koi. Oh, good. Yes. That intentional? <laughs> um, only in my unconscious. <laughs> right. So we'll take a break. About a five-minute break. Yeah, we're gonna. We'll take a little break. Uh, I'll. I'll mute everybody and. Um, yeah, we'll be back in about five minutes with uh, with Nala. So stick around. Okay, just wait a minute for Nalo here. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, there we are. Okay. Amy's not true. You don't you don't type too much. Wait, what? <laughs> Amy says she types too much of these things. I know, but I miss the socializing. I know so. it's good because then it's like that's our interaction without without being able to hear the audience. It's good. Yeah, can... no, it's great. Yeah. yeah. So welcome back to the second half of AGB. Um, our, some of our future readers are um, May nineteenth, Angela Slater. Slater, actually, I think it's Slater. I, you know, it's like. I can never remember. I but it, look, it's spelled like Slatter, but I think she told someone told me it's Slater. And Rebecca Roanhorse, June sixteenth, Nadja Bolton and Shauna McGuire. July twenty first, we have Kim Stanley Robinson and Nancy Cress. August eighteenth, we have AC Wise and Karen Lord, and we'll see what who we have after that. So, um, our next reader is Nalo Hopkinson who is a Jamaican-born Canadian author and maker of objects. <clears throat> she has won the World Fantasy Award, the Andre Norton Nebula Award, and the Sunburst Award for Canadian Literature of the Fantastic. She authored and co-authored the series House of Whispers for DC Comics, set in Neil Gaiman's Sandman universe. Zephyr recently honored her with the Grandmaster Award for Lifetime Achievement. Congratulations, Nello, and welcome to the reading. Thank you. Um, so my story, I have one story for you. It's uh, quite a different tone than Bruce's, um, which still, both, both of which still have me all for Klimt. Um, it's a little short, so that gives me time to tell you a bit of the background. The story is called Covenant, and it was recently published in an anthology called Planet City um, by a man named Liam Young. He's a speculative uh, architect. Uh, and uh, there is a, a theory, an idea out there in the world that one of the ways that we could rewild the planet, that give it um, time and space to just recover itself from everything that humanity has done to it, is if the whole human race retreated into one large city and left the rest of the planet to itself. Um, this is, uh, the anthology is part of uh, a multimedia project. There's a, a film that Liam has made. Um, this is all going to be part of, I believe, a triennale uh, in, in Australia. Um, so he contacted me and asked me if I would write a story, a science fiction story for the project. He put together a team of a uh, think tank of people. Um, he put together um, different types of fiction writers and everybody had come up with the way that the ways in which this world would work, how it would, um, how its various cultures would work, how its uh, infrastructure would work, um, and he asked me to write a science fiction story set in the world. My brain is a very contrary one, so the minute I said to it over a year ago, "So you need to write a science fiction story," it said, mm, "Do we though? Do we really? Does it have to be science fiction?" And I kept trying various kinds of ways to go at the story and. Uh, checking over the wonderful document that Liam sent to me um, and the deadline was coming and the deadline was coming and the deadline was coming. Uh, and finally, this is uh, Covenant is what came out. I have a Patreon um, profile and one of the things I do very, very badly is um, write short shorts um, in which I tuckerize people who are, are part of my, uh, who are my supporters. I have been quite lax at it, but I have done some of them. And the core for this story 
comes from one of those um, pieces of flash fiction I wrote. The protagonist's name is the name of the person who's a supporter of mine. Um, and here we go, Covenant. Proverb, your child wants to forget that it used to be the baby whose ass you used to wipe. Understand the city of Covenant wasn't always the city, wasn't always the place where all Earth's humans lived. For millennia before Covenant came to be, people had infested the whole of the Earth, devouring her goodness and shitting out gratitude and poison into the air, the soil, and the water. But then Earth began to defend herself. She spit our poison back at us in the form of plagues and conflagrations, damned near killed us all. So we had to learn manners, you feel me? Had to learn to respect the lady, to stop chomping on her like a teething baby that still wants the titty. We had to let her have herself back to heal. So we built the City of Covenant and retreated into it. We vowed to take nothing more from Mama Earth than we had already. We vowed to discard nothing more. We vowed ever after to break stuff we wasn't using down into its component parts and remake it into stuff we needed over and again, world without end. Thing is, we've been living here in Covenant so long that we kind of forget the way of it happening. So we make up stories about it. Nah, that ain't true. Of course we remember. Ain't we still designing and molding the modest magnificence that is the Ark of the Covenant? Don't we have, a hist have history books and textbooks and more being written all the time? Don't we have scientists and teachers and artists and griots that carry our histories for us in one form or another and won't let us disremember them? We ain't forget shit. The real truth of it is, Human beings make up fancy stories to tell each other. It is the most particular thing about us as animals. This is the story as they told it once when I was visiting my suites in the Honey Small 21,000 in the tall purple tower called Tampopo. Night times after the sun's gone down and is no longer throwing sparkling traceries of sunshine through the hollow mirrored webs that pierce all the towers in multiple places, bringing life-giving light down into the city's depths, Folks who want to hang and jaw with other folks who'd rather be doing that than going to the movies or fucking or going dancing or who knows what all. I mean, they might do some of those things tomorrow or next week or in an hour or two. But for now, those folks want to go out onto the layered collars of balconies that ring Tampopo from top to bottom. They want to suck on a birra or a dew, watch their pickings climbing from level to level and yell at them to take care. And they want to share stories. Lobbying, lobbing them from one balcony to another, each balcony continuing a piece of the tale. It's a bearing of witness, a sharing. And so what if they're bearing witness to something that's made the fuck up? Fact is, there's a deep truth in there, strong and curved as a spine. Here's what they shared that night. It began out in the world laid waste. It began with a potato the eye of a potato, to be precise. This woman named Alilea, she had cut out the eyes of last night's potatoes for dinner with a sharp, sharp knife. She tossed the peel and the eyes into the garbage, because in those days, you tossed away shit you could use. It was legal and folks even thought it was necessary, don't get me started. But one eye had escaped Alilea. She found it on the kitchen table next morning, a little stubby, pale thing, lying there like a maggot, ready to dry up and die. 
She picked the potato eye up and was about to throw it away, seeing as she didn't with the rest. The single accusing bud stared up at her. On her kitchen table was an empty waxed paper cup. Her morning coffee had been in there when she got it from the shop on the way back from her morning walk. Yes, paper covered in wax to make it waterproof and then they throw it away, feel me? Any road, Alalia's steel cooking spoon held up when she used it to dig some soil out of the grass verge beside the sidewalk of her building. She had to do it that way. She wasn't allowed a garden where she lived, wasn't allowed a patch of soil. All the ground in her wee city was covered with paving or buildings or something called lawn grass that needed watering and watering but that wasn't good for nothing, not to eat, not to improve the soil, not even really for pretty to hear the old folks who were alive back then tell it. Then folks who lived out in the world was crazy. So yeah, our Alalia. She filled the cup with soil, buried the potato eye in it. The dryness of the soil against her fingers made her throat feel parched. Maybe the eye felt parched, she wondered. She didn't know shit about growing stuff, but she'd seen some things on TV. She ran some water from the kitchen tap into the cup. Then she put the cup onto the windowsill and forgot about it. Until the evening she came home from her job, that's a place they had to go most days back then to do stuff they didn't like all freaking day and somebody paid them a little bit of money for it. Money's a whole nother crazy story. I'll tell you about that another time. And that, Alalia, she looked into the cup on her kitchen windowsill and discovered an inch of eye stalk with two green leaves peeking out above the soil, complete with eye. She touched it with a gentle fingertip. The eye part of the stalk retreated, snail-like, into itself, then emerged again. The iris was yellow-green. It shimmered. The soil in the cup was nearly dried out. Alalia poured a little water into it. The eye watched her warily. She put the cup back onto the windowsill, then scurried to her fridge to see what else was in the crisper. In just a few weeks, she had a little parade of coffee cups on the windowsill, another potato eye, a kohlrabi top which was now growing two small paws or maybe they were hands, a watermelon seed had sprouted a green lump which appeared to have two nipples, the root part of a green onion had yielded a snaky scaled green tail which wagged slowly, two pink fleshy frills came from a chunk of horseradish, they seemed to prefer being kept wet, the squash seeds never grew at all, but the pineapple crown was apparently turning into many small jaws with green serrated baby teeth. When her indoor jungle seemed sturdy enough, Alalia transplanted them all into whatever she could find. Empty coffee cans, a bucket with a hole in the bottom, good for drainage, right? Rusted pots. She arranged them all along the outside wall of her ground floor apartment. The assemblage became the talk of her small apartment complex. In a few weeks, she knew more of her neighbors by name than she ever had before. Yep, people didn't talk to each other much back then unless they really wanted to. People had enough space to ignore each other. That part wasn't so bad. Any road. Philomene and Taisha in 212 suggested soft strips of t-shirt material for attaching the ever-lengthening eye stalks to the sticks Alia had stuck into the containers to support the plants. Vayu in 302 and his two daughters, Stevie and Joan, helped her to keep the plants watered. One Sunday afternoon, the guy who lived in 111 wheeled over to where Alalia was gently cleaning the teeth in the pineapple jaws with a soft toothbrush. On his lap was a garbage bag full of coffee grounds. 
He said they'd make good mulch. He'd even dried them out in his oven for her. Just did it, but they're cool now, he said. So you see, them people back then weren't entirely stupid or wasteful. They were our ancestors, after all. Must have been some good in them, as there is in us. The guy's name was Eladon, and he wondered if Alalia might like to go see a movie with him someday. Alalia's heart thumped as they made it a date. She'd noticed his strong arms. Now she'd finally get to ask him what the tattoos on them were. No, Zeta, I don't know what they were. They can be whatever you want them to be. Folding chairs and picnic umbrellas began to appear in the courtyard, surprising his gills on a horseradish. All summer, the neighbors hung out there, chatting, sharing food and beer, watching their children romp like we're doing right now. The plants grew big enough to warp and burst their pots as the apartment complex waited to see what rough beast would assemble itself from Adelia's efforts. Nobody saw it happen. Just one morning, Alalia came out of her unit and found all the plants had vacated their containers. And what's more, they weren't plants no more. Instead, lying on the ground was a tiny green dragon, no bigger than a basset hound. No wings, it was a lady worm. It just crawled where it wanted to go, but it didn't go anywhere much. It knew it had a good thing right where it was. It ate a lot and grew fast. What it liked to eat best was the stuff people in the apartment complex threw away. The tasty, yeasty vegetable peelings and bits of rotting prote. And by prote, I mean actual chopped up animals somebody had grown and killed for them. Not the animal product we grow in vats nowadays. Them folks, they killed beings like themselves and ate them. I know, right? Bug fuck crazy and mean into the bargain. The dragon grew and began eating other discarded things. Old sprung sofas and torn clothes and broken down bookcases. It grew so big that it couldn't crawl anymore. It settled itself around the apartment complex. Folks had to clamber over it to get to their jobs, but they didn't mind because no other apartment complex had a cool pet dragon. When the dragon grew big enough, it started eating other crazy things that people out in the world plagued her with in those days, sidewalks and cars and lawn grass. It got so huge that it covered the apartment complex that had birthed it. Then it got so big that it covered the whole neighborhood and then the whole wee city. It shat out mounds of rich organic stuff. It shat out towers of it. And the people in the city hollowed out the towers and made homes in them. And they didn't have to go to their jobs no more because they had everything they needed right there. They could work at whatever they pleased and have time to hang with their friends and their pickings and their sweets. And that's how the City of Covenant began. So some say, what's more, they say that one day, if we honor our covenant with the earth and show her that we're grown enough to act grown, she'll send us another baby dragon to feed and care for as it grows and grows. Only this one will have wings. And one day it'll be big and strong enough and it'll unfurl the green translucent glory of those wings. They'll be so huge, those wings, that they'll be able to sail on the wind of the sun's light. That dragon will sail us on its broad back and take us to find other beautiful worlds. Not to use up, mind, but to live in and cherish. Wire bend, story end. Thank you.
That's <laughs> yes, I would like to have a dragon grow out of my plants. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. Gills on a horseradish, gills on a horseradish. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if people have questions, feel free to start typing them in. But we can start. Um, let's see. Um, Bruce, do you prefer writing fantasy or science fiction, or do you care? Or horror? I mean, oh, no. <laughs> which is um, your genre or subgenre? Or do you have one? I'm, I'm writing really short these days. And so it's like, it's not, if someone were to say, which would you rather write, you know, a 20,000 word fantasy or 20,000 word? Um, science fiction might say fantasy or horror, one of the two. Um, but now I just kind of do because I'm working at really short lengths. Just I mean, I may they may end up dark matter or some minus. I reach a point where they're they're the words are the stories are so short they're sucking up the you know the space around them. You're asking um, publishers to send stories back to you instead. Right? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> Negative word count. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I started in science fiction. I read, I mean, I, at the age of the, the character in that second story, the seventh daughter, um, I was just reading uh, science fiction voraciously, no fantasy, just really science fiction. So I grew up, it was interesting, I grew up on, gee, on Heinlein and Cordwainer Smith and, and all of those people. And, you know, I've lived now long enough that analog, astounding, no longer is receptive to ESP. It's like, how long have I been like <laughs> right. John Campbell, right? John Campbell, that was one of his big things, Psy, Psyonics. And now it's, you know, no, our readers don't like that. So it's like, whoa, <laughs> these giant arcs. Right. And um, and I was I had a story. In fact, again, it's you know you just marvel. You live long enough that you can marvel at these circles and cycles of things. That my first short story ended up in a in, ended up in a uh, in uh, Isaac Asimov and Martin Greenberg's uh, best SF stories. And for the year, it was the year 1963. Well, according to, to um, uh, Isaac Asimov, that was the last year of the golden age. And it was like, I have lived so long that my first story was the end of the golden age. Then I went through new, you know, new wave. I mean, you know, and wherever we are now. So um, I guess the bottom line is one writes what one needs to write. And um, that's so sometimes it's science fiction. I remember I mentioned, probably didn't mention it to you, but I hate, you know, I announced it to friends anyways years ago. You know, I hate vampire fiction. Then immediately went and wrote something. <laughs> right. <laughs> For your I, I, you know, People say, what are you sick of? And I'll say, well, at one point I could not, I thought uh, I would never stand to read another zombie story. And yes. yes, then you read a fabulous zombie story. No, because making if fiction isn't about making it new, I mean, and that's what you're, you know, the unicorn. You can make, you can be disgusted with unicorns, but you can make them new and fall in love with them again. Mm -hmm. So yeah. 
I don't think that answered the question, but anyway, <laughs> a lot of words. We have a question from uh, Misty306. Uh, which books have you enjoyed the most throughout quarantine? There's a thing that when I was at Clarion and um, the writers and residents, many of them said that they no longer read much fiction, but were reading mostly nonfiction. I thought that's not going to happen to me. Um, but it has happened. Uh, it's really difficult for me to read fiction for pleasure now, partly because it's my job. Um, not only am I writing, I'm teaching creative writing. Um, and then come quarantine, artists mobilized and people started doing all these projects that were about basically helping us get through COVID uh, halfway soon. And so my the level of requests I was getting to do various things, writings, readings, whatever it is, teaching, felt like it has tripled. So I haven't done much reading for pleasure at all. However, recently I picked up, because I used to be able to read, not very deeply, but read a novel a day if I wanted to. And wow. I want to have that back, that, that ability to just get lost mm -hmm. in a story. And I picked up uh, N.K. Jemison's The City We Became. And it's three days on, I'm now two thirds of the way through the dang thing and loving it. Um, so that's one I would definitely recommend. Um, I have also just received, so this is not so much a recommendation as a cool thing you might not know about, The Mermaid of the Black Conch by Monique Rafi, who is a Trinidadian writer. Um, let me show you the cover. She's an award-winning writer. I have read her nonfiction, I've read her fiction. Doesn't that look mm -hmm. tasty? So that's going to be the next one. Okay. Bruce, what have you been reading? Anything? Uh, probably because of politics and the polarization. I, I grew up, um, it's a long story, but I grew up with a lifeboat mindset, which is we're all in it together. and. Well, that I don't know when that disappeared from the nation, but it seems to have. So I've been, actually read a lot of uh, policy journals, scholarly, just those kind of calm, reasonable people, and uh, with their context rather than little pieces. So that that I, that's therapy, I guess. I, so I read that in difficult times for some kind of order and therapy. Um, just I, I've actually gone back to. To people I liked decades ago, and it's funny because you might be young and like them, but I think you also are in subtly picking up on the fact that they're good, even if you couldn't possibly analyze right why they're good. Mm -hmm. So some of my the ones who've influenced me over time in science fiction. I wish I could go back and remove the '50s male stuff from Cordwainer Smith. But I mean, I, I just love his, you know, got 12 languages and he's just amazing. And it's just dated with the, though he does some interesting things, the woman who's a man. And I mean, there's some interesting things there, but it's, uh, it's in that kind of creaky fifties way, but re-engaging and re-engaging him and, um, and, uh, just science fiction or even old issues of astounding and galaxy. It's kind of like, getting to see differently what what I responded to back in the day. But Sherwood Anderson, a lot of uh, 
of uh, just original short story writers, you know, the ones that, that uh, influenced American short fiction. And um, so that's, that's it, I guess, revisiting, mm -hmm. revisiting, you know, and it's rather remarkable what you can find out by going back and reading what you, yeah. you sometimes you find out you totally misunderstood the story. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Or, or, you know, with, with time, you realize that you're getting something completely different out of it. Well, yeah, I, the first novel I, God, how old am I? The first novel I loved was by Andre Norton called Starborn. And I have tried again and again to find in it the novel that I fell in love with. I was 14, what are the chances? I mean, it was like a code, a code of wonder. Right. Yeah. These wonderful things happen. Code. No, I can't. You know, you pick it up and you read the first sentence. You know, I know where this sentence is going. And I know, you know, it's just like jaded. Shoot me, please. <laughs> um, but yeah. And I remember in college. Oh, what a great novella. Uh, Death in Venice is. No, I got it totally wrong. It's great, but not for the reason I thought. I can interpret the exact opposite of what. So that means that it's all a Rorschach test, right? It's all, yeah. all. And that's okay. We still write what we need to write, whatever the influence is, whatever the illusions are. Yeah. Uh, this um, question's close to my heart. Are you want to read it, uh, Ellen? Which one, that, one for Matt? And how do you go about stretching yourself creativity, creatively, getting outside your writerly comfort zone when you feel you're in a rut? Oh, this is, oh, this is literally, yeah, yeah. Okay. So either you can take this. Uh, so, is no, this you go for that one. Yeah. Um, how do you get out of your, if you feel you're in a rut, do, yeah. do something you're terrified yeah. of doing. <laughs> do something you're terrified of doing. Um, <laughs> put it out into the world that you want to write comics. And... <laughs> How did the, you get into writing comics? I, I put it out into the world that I wanted to write comics. And um, I was studying a little bit, trying my hand at a few things and, and you know, bending the air of people who write comics and are comics artists and who publish comics. And um, then Vertigo, uh, which used to be a publishing arm of DC, contacted me and said, we're, writing, we're going to be publishing four new Sandman books. Would you like to pitch? us for one and I said duh so I pitched <laughs> it is the worst pitch I have ever written and I've written some bad ones <laughs> I will never read that pitch again but that's how I, I got into doing it but the question about when you feel you're in a rut sometimes it means literally doing something different like moving from if you're writing on a keyboard to writing on paper uh, moving from you know getting up from that piece of thing you're trying to write and going and cooking a meal or making a doll or having a walk. Um, there's nothing like doing something physical that you don't have to think much about or freeing up the creative brain. Yeah. For me, that's going for a walk, doing the dishes. Um, when I'm stuck, a lot of dishes get done. When, when I'm not, <laughs> do not go into the kitchen. <laughs> um, and yeah, keep throwing yourself into that place that is scary. Uh, and you know what it is because your brain keeps trying to skitter you around it. 
Mm. Go go right into it and see what happens. Risk risk having to be a learner again. Bruce, do you have a technique for overcoming uh, rust? Well, it, it's again when you've written as many centuries as I have. That's again how it feels. The <clears throat> what happens, and I obviously it, I didn't predict that it would happen. I I have a lot of writer's blocks. Well, they're not, and also. I'm a writing coach, so I'm supposed to know how to solve them. The writer's blocks are interesting. They're often about method. In other words, how I approach the material. They're not about what you might think. So I think it's kind of like that narrowing path of right action thing where it gets narrower and narrower and you better not step off the path. So sometimes it's a matter of why can't I can't write, I can't write this story. I should be able to write the story and then it'll be, oh, I'm approaching it in absolutely the wrong way. And once I do it, it unblocks. So in one sense, and also it's a matter of making things new again. And yeah. the question was about tropes and probably cliches. And I'm a firm believer in the blue unicorn exercise, which is if you hate mafia hitmen, make them short Irish guys who hate opera, but have to pretend they like it or take away the horn turn the unicorn blue, it's mad about the horn, and uh, it cavorts with whores rather than virgins in the moonlight. Yeah. Well, you know, Bruce, I mean, I think can be, can be made new again, and it's important, okay, get on the soapbox here, professorial soapbox. It's an, a cliche, is just a badly executed universal or we wouldn't keep having them. <laughs> all you have to do is find a fresh way of articulating the universal. And if you throw away the universals with the cliches, you end up in trouble. Mm. All the time. Anyway, that I really believe that. So yes, blue unicorns. Um, that's how basically how I do it. I see a couple of things here that are not coming in as, as com comments, but are over in the comments. I mean, yeah, well, I the comments window. Well, yeah, there's a comment window, but I wanted to say, Bruce, I followed your career. I only started publishing you when I was in Omni, <clears throat> I think in the early eighties or so, maybe in the mid eighties, yeah. but you had a whole career before that. You've published really young. I mean, your first didn't yes. you first novel beyond humanity was it or something? Well, it was actually that first short story, and I view it as the muse, male or female, it doesn't matter, uh, having tricked me because then it took another twenty stories before I sold my second story. But that first story ended up, yeah, I was sixteen, reading voraciously. I mean, I would walk to class and read a short ace double, you know. Right. Those novels. I, I was living and breathing. It was more real, and I'm sure many of the people listening you were, you were well, more real, especially at that age, more real than, yeah. than the rest of the reality. And and so I wrote this story, and it ended up being reprinted in Judith Merrill's Year's Best. And yeah, it was a long time ago. Um, yeah. And then you start, but you started writing differently in different. I see you writing in different stages. Yes, well, you're right. Different things. I mean, Dream. Ba I read Dream Baby, yeah. Vietnam, <clears throat> an excellent novel. I think it was based on a novella, but I don't know. But yeah, it was. Uh, short story. And then you didn't write for a few years, or at least I didn't see things. And then you started be sending me a whole different set of stories for Omni that were about um, exactly. 
animals um, and genetic engineering. Yes. A I whole bunch of wonderful stories at the girl who loved animals and all these heartbreaking stories that were science fiction about humanity's basically. Well, the stories for you at, at Omni that run, you know, and, and the stories in other places around that time, but mainly the Omni stories were definitely a phase. I mean, that's not a phase, but I mean a period. And, were, and well, people yeah. will say, why don't you go and, and write like that again? And it's like, I can't do it. I'm, you know, so. You write something completely different. And like every 20 years or so, you write something different. And sometimes <laughs> I like them. A bunch of like, oh, I don't like those at all. And then you start writing something else. I do. It's, it's just very peculiar seeing It is how, let me put it simply, it is I am determined <laughs> to be the last man standing. <laughs> so, no, it is you can't, you can't go back. It's just crazy. You can't go back. It says something about what fiction really is. I mean, it may come out on the page, but it's where you are in life. And uh, yeah, man, it'd be nice if it got a little bit longer, the pieces. So I'm working on the length, as you know. But yeah, um, years ago, Ellen posted something and said, you know, McAllister is a decent writer, but I'm being modest. But he goes through these these bursts where he just writes for a while and then he doesn't write. Right? Total silence. Well, the long one, as you know, thanks to the the um, experiments of a local mad local doctor, uh, cost me about ten years. And so I never thought, especially under that medication, I never imagined I'd write again. And then. Mm -hmm. 2003, a paragraph, two paragraphs. And finally, it was 10 years later, it was in fact the seventh daughter was the first story after. So if you're gonna write, you're gonna write. And writing has been important to me. It keeps me, keeps the world something, keep relationship with the universe, meaning, order, something. So in other words, it keeps me. Going insane. Yeah, no, no. Right. Going insane. But then the question is, why do I go insane if I don't? Right. You're right. <laughs> okay. I, 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 I have a, a similar, oh, a similar period where I couldn't write and was afraid I was not going to be able mm -hmm. to. It was partly health stuff and partly uh, yeah. financial stuff. And uh, now I find I have ADD. I, I lose things all the time, but I find notebooks scattered about the apartment and they will be a paragraph in it that could only be mine. So somewhere yes. in there, the brain is still yeah. doing no, thing. Still, yeah, yeah. Health's not a good thing because health also often involves medication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was medication is kind of not who we are. Yeah. Uh, this is a question that's uh, cl uh, close to my heart. It's from Amy Goldschlager. Uh, she asked Nalo, uh, "You seem very in tune with growing things in your work. What kinds of plants do you grow?" Well, here's the funny thing. Um, if you read my work to try and figure out what I do and what I like, you will often be misled. <laughs> but that's not a bad question. I used to say that I couldn't bear growing plants because they just sit there and die, whereas a pet will tell you when you've not changed the litter box in three weeks. <laughs> but um, partly because of the, those, those couple of years of extreme financial duress, um, I started growing stuff when I could, uh, you know, literally if you take what, what Ali is doing, if you take the, 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 the bottom off the leak and put that bottom in some water, you have more leaks and you don't have to spend another 4 dollars for them. Um, 
I have not been able to do that much here. I we live in an apartment with no balcony, first floor. The place where I would be growing things in pots is where they spray for, for insects. Um, so what you're seeing is the frustration of not being able to grow stuff and the plans I have for growing stuff. I'm not really a gardener, but I do like pretty plants that you can eat. So squash is it's just it's a gorgeous, gorgeous plant. And then you get squash blossoms and then you get squash. It's, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> Um, we have a question from Linda Addison for Bruce. Uh, Linda wants to know, Bruce, do you write the first draft of the story and then layer in the deeply touching emotional psychological of your stories? My heart is still aching with the two you read. Oh, thank you, Linda. Um, that's a very perceptive question. I, I, I do do a lot of layering. I mean, I kind of write a template and then I go back and it's the old gun, you know, if you're going to shoot the gun at the end of the story, it better be there at the beginning, that kind of prepping, layering, and but shaping. And so not just not just epiphanic moments, but but uh, just layering in. And uh, I view it as kind of a musical composition that has color. In other words, well, you can start with purple. But if suddenly in the middle of the story, you turn it red, and the ending involves red. Maybe you need to do a little prepping, you know, color, you know, purple and red and purple and red. So it's a matter of shape and all that. But layering yeah, is very important uh, to me. And I do lots. I'm a very visual writer, which means unlike I've got a close friend who actually a couple of them who hear the damn stuff. They hear their novels. Oh, please. <laughs> and they come out, no punctuation. They have to be punctuated. But they're publishable novels. Come on, and you know. Um, anyway, I hate that. I hate them. Um, uh, so I'm visual, so I have to see it in order to know. It. it has to mirror back to me what the you know I know to be good. And wouldn't it be nice if it came out already layered and nice? But it doesn't. So it, you know, I remember the first time I felt bad about myself, and that was hearing that I think Gibson, you know, his short stories would be too. Two drafts, you know, and then they'd be published. And it was, I can kill myself, I can kill him, or I can keep writing and not be competitive. So um, thank you, Linda. Um, glad you like the stories. Now, how did you get, how did you start writing? Have you been writing since you were a kid or did something, <clears throat> did you start later? I'm getting to a point where I start to forget the answers to those questions. Um, so my dad was a writer. He was a poet, playwright, actor. Uh, mm -hmm. My mother is a library technician. She's the person who puts the cutter numbers on the spines of books. There were house full of books of all kinds, everything from Caribbean folklore to, to Gulliver's Travels. So I read, that's what I did. Um, I didn't write. Um, in my teen years, I was 16. I was living in Guyana. Uh, living with my aunt and a friend of hers realized I liked science fiction. And those were not books you could find in Guyana at the time. Um, not Ghana, Guyana, in, in uh, a Caribbean country, typical South America. And he was a big science fiction reader and brought some of his books over to lend me. And one of them was a compilation of stories from a Clarion workshop. And that was when it occurred to me that you could learn how to write 
the stuff that I loved reading. It hadn't occurred to me that anybody could show you how. Um, and I sort of tucked that away and kept reading, you know, science fiction fantasy voraciously till I moved to Canada and had a chance to attend the Clarion workshop. And that was when I was, I believe in my early thirties. Um, a couple of years before that, uh, Judy Merrill was living in Toronto and she had offered a science fiction writing workshop uh, through a local college. But you, in order to get in, she wanted to evaluate the, the quality of your writing, so you had to submit a story, and I had not written anything. So I sat down and wrote six pages of a thing, freaked out because I had no idea what to do, where to take it. I just got stuck, handed it in as, as it was. Got into the workshop, which didn't get enough people to run. But Judy sat the six of us down who'd gotten into it and showed us how to um, be a critique And that's how I started writing. Um, and that first six pages, I think, eventually became the beginning of my first novel. Uh, we have a question here from Linda. Uh, Nalo, did the story you read come with the wonderful voice of the main character from the beginning? Pretty close. Uh, I know that I was thinking of you as I was reading it because I know you you will have picked up on some of the vernacular um, notes I was putting in there. They're from various different places, but um, I have to start with the voice, or I, I don't have anything. So, so yes, the voice was very very close to what it what it is now, um, and I didn't even know if they would take the story because I got done. I thought they wanted science fiction. This is a fable. Hmm. I've got, you know, solar winds in the end, <laughs> but luckily the, the, uh, the editor, uh, Mr. Young was, was quite cool with that. So yeah, voice, voice is really, really important to me. I have to be able to get the attitude of the character and the way they speak. And then the story will start to flow better. Hmm. Um, Bruce, um, do you find any similarities between writing poetry and, and short fiction? Oh, interesting question. Uh, yeah, actually I do. I think that's one of the reasons it is possible. Uh, I hope it's not true that I've become, I think it started a couple of decades ago, a little impatient with impatient or maybe I don't believe it as much plot the plotting of things. What I believe in, unfortunately, is epiphany, those moments of realization, of transcendence. Ah, well, that's fine for poetry, right? What's a poetic moment? But that's going to make your fiction real short, which is, of course, exactly where I am. So, um, uh, yeah, there is. Um, certainly, it makes you sometimes good cursor blessing, uh, can make you more of a stylist, meaning paying a tremendous amount of attention to style when you, because because poetry is about making language new and about the conflation of time and space, you know, through language, all these things that not real, more Einsteinian than, than narrative, time, space, illusion, you know, fiction tends to be. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, epiphany is important to me. 
I don't mean that religious sense, but the transcendental moment, the moment of realization, poetic moments. Yeah, very definitely. Nalo, how did you um, adjust to writing comics after writing? Mm -hmm. I mean, how did you have to? How did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> He's laughing. How did you know what to do? <laughs> well, the first attempted a comic I, I wrote, I showed to Mark Asquith, who is the, was at that point, the executive producer of Canada Science Fiction Station. Dear, dear friend of mine, a wonderful guy. And he said too many words. He said too many words. Did you write it to the art? I mean, did you have art first? I mean, how does, I'm not even sure how comics work. Um, Illustrated to the text or is it? It depends on whether you're writing something in a licensed world. So if it's DC or, right. or you know Marvel, um, it's it's writer driven, and then it goes mm -hmm. to the artists. Okay. Usually, if it's um, something indie where you're doing the art and and the, the writing, mm -hmm. you choose. Mm -hmm. um, if it's something that's a, a project for one of the smaller publishers like Abrams or, or Fantagraphics, again, you choose, but it tends to be writer-driven. And I'm, I'm teaching um, two creative writing classes now, one grad, one undergrad in the graphic novel. And my students are beginning to practice yeah. writing scripts, and many of them are prose people. So mm -hmm. The idea that script is a set of you're communicating your vision to the artists. It's not just about, mm -hmm. they, they tend to be very sort of plot, 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 and what people mm -hmm. are thinking. And I'm like, yes, but what do you want the artist to take mm -hmm. from this? What are they going to produce based on your words? And it is a big switch. Um, it, the first two comics I did for Vertigo, I had to rewrite eight times each before the editors were like, okay, we can work with this. Mm. Um, because I was putting things in the panel descriptions that would have gone into the words that would be on the comic and vice versa. And then a switch happened. I began to get the hang of it, but writing a monthly comic is brutal. Um, and fibromyalgia, ADHD, nonverbal limb disorder, full-time teaching gig. <laughs> and uh, the editor said, would you like a co-writer for a while? Um, I said, yes please and they uh got dan waters co-writing with me and that was an apprenticeship in itself dan has so much more experience and is so <coughs> generous and professional is so much uh an artist and a stylist in his writing and is so very very good at collaborating that like he knew how to let me take the lead but also how to sort of say well this might work better so I, I had an apprenticeship with Dan Waters and four editors and occasionally Neil um, is, is how I began to get the hang of it. I did fairly quickly get the hang of it, but it was pretty routine. Uh, Carol has a question. Um, has coaching and teaching new writers affected your own writing any way? Um, I think you both Coach and teach, right? So uh, we'll start with uh, Bruce. Uh, I keep asking myself that question. I have for you know some years now. Um, I don't think 
directly it has because actually what the coaching that I do is merely fiction, but um, non it's actually all sorts of genre and form. It's really a matter of bringing to consciousness the craft, the techniques, if that makes any sense, meaning that that's the main role. Lots of writers write very incredibly well, much better than I do, um, and but they don't necessarily, it would be hard for them to teach because they can't, haven't brought to consciousness what they do. And that applies to any, you know, art form and probably tennis and everything else. Um, I don't, has it made me, let's say, focus more on language in my own writing? I don't think it has. No. But I keep asking the question. So thank you for the question. Now, I, I think it has me in, in some good ways and some not so good ways. Uh, the good ways far away. <laughs> the not so good uh, and one of the not so good is that um, when I started teaching I mean I moved to the US to start teaching university I've not done it before and discovered just how how much my students struggle to write a functioning sentence and how little they know about and how to do it and it, it breaks my heart because I could see the creativity just coming off of them and the words are they very very poor at uh, handling meaning in a sentence. Mm -hmm. um, so now things I never used to be able to do, like confuse there and there, like spell them wrong, I couldn't before this. Now I do it all the time because I'm reading it all the time. Um, on the other hand, sometimes I'll find myself uh, going over a text by someone and there's a thing they're doing and I've seen it the week before and the week before and the week before. And they're not getting it. They don't understand why it's getting me so exercised. And then I realize it's because of something I do. So it's very, it's an exercise in humility. And then bless their hearts, they will ask you questions about how things work. And you think, I have no freaking clue. <laughs> <laughs> so it does mean that I have to bring to consciousness what this process is. Distressing thing is that half the time I think I'm lying. Because I, it's kind of innate, and I, I I don't have an explanation for it that feels like it gets at the, the <laughs> kernel of what they're asking me. But every so often, I hit a moment where I say something, and I see some a light go on in someone's eyes, and they start mm -hmm. scrabbling for the keyboard or the notebook. Or the, I love those moments where I, I half the time I don't know what it is I've done. I'm not even sure what it is I've said. But, I've helped them find something that they didn't know they had. It's yeah. so gorgeous. It's the old, old question of whether writing can be taught or not. And and that's a glib question, and it's it usually been answered in a glib way. And what I think you're saying is it's surprising what can be. I mean, how you can connect and there'll be, but that doesn't mean you have any control over it. It's not something you're going to put in the textbook or writer's digest book. That's the, you know, the terrible thing. A tremendous amount, I think, can be. And I, I, I taught in university for uh, 23 years and since then, so now over a little over 20, I've been doing just writing coaching. So it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's very, very different. And they're choosing to come to me. They tend to be older, right? They've got projects. And um, um, I 
it's interesting. Some are, you know, congenitally unable. I know it sounds terrible. Just hear me out. Congenitally unable to write certain kinds of things, like we all are. And at the same time, if they are moved gently over to what's truer to them, it's amazing what they can write. I learned, learned that. I learned that actually at a community inner city community college, and. I was told by the chair, a very smart guy, he said, don't do the level below college, because they're all angry that they're not in the college level. Go one below that and work with short texts, and you will be stunned by how smart and creative and eloquent they are. Maybe orally, just orally, but amazing. So one of the wonderful things about coaching and teaching is discovering that if someone is writing, and I know it sounds glib, writing true to themselves, even mechanics, hmm. everything fixes. Well, you don't want to be in a, an English department and say, you know, if, they, if people are writing creatively true to themselves, their grammar and composition will all improve. What? Well, that means you don't have to teach those courses. That's not <laughs> to tell people. So it's kind of one of the reasons I no longer, you know, it was like, no, I just want to work one on. <laughs> I yeah. don't want to that. Yeah, I remember the first time I had a story from a, a young man who's an undergrad and the story was really strong and clearly something that he felt experienced. Yeah. Um, he could not, I think he treated commas like they came in a salt shaker. Grammar all over the place, but he has to work with me one in one, and um, wrote it was it was memoir actually, and by the end of it, he found his own style. So the lack of commas was actually working for him. Yes, it wasn't exactly. that he learned how to use commas; it he was he learned how to not let them get in his way. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh well. So both of you, you know, have multiple um, creative endeavors. Like Nalo, you said, you know, you work in comics and, and fiction, and Bruce, you do fiction and poetry. Are there other other um, creative endeavors that you have besides those? Nalo, you. Yeah. I have your fabric. You do fabric. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to have to stand up again. And yes, I am. You you wonderful be, mer mermaids, too. I'll be right back. Yeah. Okay. Um, we'll wait for her. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> so intense. Here it comes. Here we go. I don't know if she'll even fit in the frame. Hey. And this thing is backwards. I know everything's backwards. Hell out of me. Oh, she's but, She's almost three feet. Wow. Is that a gourd? Is that a gourd? No, board? it's fabric. It's fabric oh, yeah. in the chicken wire frame. Wow. The front part for a second, it looked like a gourd. Yeah, yeah. It's all fabric um, that's been stuffed to bursting and then painted mm -hmm. and sanded and painted and sanded. Um, so I've, I've started making sculptures, really. Uh, and yeah, there's lots of of African mermaids and my stuff. But this this one draws on the, I think it's Sumerian, the snake goddess images that you see a lot. And it ties in with a lot of uh, their, their connections, echoes 
in some West African snake woman imagery. So I just sort of married the two because mm -hmm. I wanted to and I could. <laughs> and what do you do? What else do you do, Bruce? Oh, um, <clears throat> I love film and TV. I will watch almost anything, not married with children, but I'll watch a creature feature. <laughs> and and I, I just love it. Um, I, I always have. So right before COVID, we'll get into details. It looked like Dream Baby, but a, a really morphed version of Dream Baby was going to be set up gigantic project. They were attaching talent, writers, actors. I mean, it looked like it was going to go. And I loved, I actually, I love that kind of writing. It's because it's, it's a, you know, it's called treatments. It's called, you know, it's pitching and, and how to bring to life in a, in an expositional way. I mean, it's like an exciting, energetic, expositional way of writing because you're having to summarize things. And I really enjoyed it. And I think that threw me off because then it was like, I'm not continuing. Oh no, what's happening. So I needed to get back to fiction. But I also grew up um, in art. So I do some art painting occasionally. Um, and um, and you're collecting, you're collecting your archaeological stuff. Stuff. Well, this is yes. I I grew up <coughs> in a science family. My dad was kind of a marine electrical engineer, classified work, microwave communicate, Cold War. He was Annapolis, and our mother was an underdog championing cultural anthropologist. We're not quite sure because the DNA. Test, there isn't a large enough pool to find out, but if you look at photographs of, of her dad, I mean, it's either Chicksaw or, or Cherokee. And so the social, the social sciences and the natural sciences, so I grew up with early man, archaeology and paleontology and marine, and that's what makes me happy is going out in nature. And you could tell that from that one story. But, uh, less happy, more happy, happier with nature than I am with people and their relationship to nature. And um, yeah, so yeah, my office here, if you could see it, uh, the bookcases, there are bookcases, but half the bookcases are also filled with, with rocks and fossils. You've given me some rocks and fossils. Yeah. <laughs> Ellen is very kind. I mean, she... <laughs> okay, Bruce, you have another rock for me. Thanks, hello. Hey, is this? Yeah. Rocks, rocks are amazing. I think. I don't know what it is, but I have it here. What interested me recently over the past maybe 10 years is fossil ghosts. I don't know what this is. I can't remember. But, oh, sorry, again. Oh, it's the other way, yeah. Is that? Did I give that to you? Yes, you gave me all of these. Oh, oh yes. Those are shards of those are neo neolithic i think from okay. north the wrong direction oh yeah no that's the uh actually from Agnon from uh, the idea that i'm holding something so early man yeah it's I'm like you something third person to touch these speaking of ghosts so, so what are we talking about these are our, our artifacts uh this flint, flint from southern from yeah. southern france and so that outside the cave to me, I'm holding something so ancient. Tools. Yeah. Yeah. How old? Yeah. How old? I freaked, I freaked her out by by making her an earring from a, a labrum 
decoration <laughs> from North Africa, Neolithic, so five to 8,000 years old. I am now wearing, oh no, I'm wearing. <laughs> yeah. But so wonderful. Oh, so try to imagine you go in this, the canyon here, you can go and find just endless uh, seashells, coral, marine invertebrates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but what if they've been put under pressure and heat? So you have you can there are so many seashells in the, the formations here that you can track them. You can see where the oysters start to, to bleed and become ghosts mm -hmm. in the rock, in the metamorphic rock. Wow. It's just amazing. Guess what? There's no field. There is no scientific There's field. No field. Why? Why? Geologists, it's metamorphic rock. What are you talking about? Who gives a damn? And the taxonomist, paleontologist, you can't tell what species it is. I'm not interested. And of course, how could a science, you know, a science fiction writer not be interested in it? Or a, a Gaian, a Gaian fantasy, right? I mean, how could you not be interested in that? Where you look, you hold up the rock and you go, oh my God, that is oyster shell that is now smeared like a ghost through it. It has started to, to bleed and to ooze and all of that. Well, the, the idea of these spans of time, I just, Oh yeah, it blows my mind. Um, my wife and I were were on a trip in Switzerland. We were hiking up a mountain. I don't know how high we were. We were like, I don't know, eight thousand feet above sea level, and yeah. there were <laughs> right. fossilized shells yeah. in the rock. There's no water anywhere. There's no ocean anywhere. It's it's like the Antarctic above sea saying. level. Yeah. So, like, how many millions of years had to pass for this to come up to that height? I, I, had, I had decades ago this fantasy, and I would I'd, I'd tell it to people. I would say, you know, if you want a good college, all of your faculty, just make them fantasy and science fiction. <laughs> why? Well, we all know why. Right? We're fascinated by this stuff. We're lay experts on all of this stuff, and also we're, you know, full of life and to hell with conventional scholarship. So <laughs> we'll tell um, you a story about it. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. I found I was um, when I was a teenager out with my church group and we were somewhere in the country in Jamaica on a mountain somewhere. And I, I ran away from the churchy people with my, my best friend and he found a fossilized shell that was the inside was full of um crystal yes uh, but it was yeah water had not been there for a very very long time but there was this shell so well, what's fascinating about that is if it has crystal in it that means that it was an air pocket it's just like a geode and it was under sediment and sediment never got inside it and over millions of years the water carried the silica into it and made the crystals. There's your Matt, your time, the incredible time it takes. Yeah. They still don't understand fossilization. Well, why would you? You know, it takes millions of years, you guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. It's a geode. It's a shell that became a geode. Yeah, that's, a shell. that's amazing. Are there more questions about yeah. any? <laughs> Any more questions? By the way, if you notice me looking to the side, it's because my cats have been chasing each other for the last 10 minutes. I see. <laughs> There's one from Carol here. She yeah. says, I have mermaid envy. I, I, yes, <laughs> I love your mermaid. So, you know, of course, it pains Thank me you. to read a story in your direction. You know. 
I yeah, it, that hurt, but it hurt in a good way. Your story. Um, Wonderful wow. comments from everybody. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I don't see any more questions coming in. Do do either of you have any questions for each other? Well, for anyone. For anyone, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's a question for Bruce. Okay. Oh what yes. Missed yet? Oh, Spanish 108. I think this was. I missed this before. Yeah. How do you approach writing a prologue? How is it different from writing a first chapter? I think there are so many kinds of prologue. It's hard to answer. The short that the short story I read happens to be the little novel. Okay, that little novel, The Village Sang to the Sea, is about. Okay. It's got two realities. One is the stories this boy writes over his life. What are you doing, Jack? And the other is the life he lives. All right, so the life he lives and the other. So there are two real, uh, the, the seventh daughter is actually the prologue that is a story he has written. That makes any sense. Well, that's pretty arcane, that's pretty strange. A lot of, a lot of prologues are, um, are omniscient, or if you're writing a certain kind of genre fiction, expendable characters, you know, think of your teen monster movie. You've got to have the teenage couple making making out so that the beast can get them in the, in the prologue, basically. Um, so they're different, they're different kinds. I know agents hate them because they're not representative, I'm right? I'm not wild about them. I'm not wild about them, but I mean, I read a novel in the last few years, and I don't remember even what kind of novel. It, was mm -hmm. probably, it might have been a crime novel. It might have been hard. I have no idea. But the prologue told the whole story. Where was the editor? You know? where, where, where is the agent? Where was the editor? Why did you do that? Why mm -hmm. would you do that? I don't understand. I mean, it's not like it. I don't get well, sometimes, it. often they are really extraneous. I mean, a lot of the right, the new newbie writers, young writers I work with, they'll have a prologue, and it's why we, you know, I mean, it's got to have a function. If it doesn't have a function, we want an intimate point of view experience with your main character. Please give it well, to us. Same it. thing with dreams. Unless I mean, in, unless a dream does something, unless it enhances, it explains a character, or psychologically does something. Yeah. It's worthless. I mean, like, what? It's just waste of space. I think. I mean, I mean, but there are uses for dreams. Well, it's because because dreams are subordinate. In other words, yeah, it's a dream, but I'm interested in what's really happening. So yeah. please, you know, it's kind of dream has something to do with what's really happening. Yeah. <clears throat> Otherwise, forget it. I, I mean, I would yeah. argue with Lucius. Lucius once had a long dream sequence in a story, and it made him cut the whole thing. He probably, he probably put it, it was a novella, I'm sure. And probably when he did it, had it collected or something, he probably put the dream back in. But I said, why do you have a two-page dream? Well, I view, I view it as competitive. It's competing. It's competitive. So it better have a good reason. Right. You know, otherwise, where it's like, all right, and the story is needs to continue, please. Why are we in this subordinate reality? What, yeah. what and why are we stopping this story dead here for yeah. like 10 minutes? Mm. Yeah. Bad. Dreams are bad. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, of prologues one thing. for the beginning writers that I'm working with, they, they've thought long and hard about this world and the background and everything, and they're going to tell you all of it to you, because yeah. so you can understand, like, we don't care until we know <laughs> your characters and have a reason to be absorbed by them. That's right. Take that stuff, sprinkle it throughout. As, I think that's one of the hardest things. 
Yeah, I think it's one of the hardest things to learn as a, as a new writer is what not to put in, right? Because like you, especially like a spec, yeah, especially like a spec fic author, you have like these, like you said, these fantastical worlds that you've dreamt up, and you want to put it all on the page, but you can't do that. You can't. Well, but you need enough so that the reader can comprehend exactly. You know, clarify. You need to clarify things out sometimes. Sure. You know, there have been. Didn't get out. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. I mean, two words. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Gibson's first, William Gibson's first submission me was um, with Johnny Mnemonic. And the, okay, the thing is, though, at the time, it was so compressed, it was hard to understand what was going mm -hmm. on. And I got him to decompress it. Now, 30 years, 40 years later, of course, now you write the script. We, don't know, we all wish we had the original. I wish we had the original script so I could see what he actually no. did. We would understand it now the way it was. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and it's really unfortunate because you know maybe things, now, had, yeah, things had sped up very definitely, certainly mm -hmm. over fifty years, and but I think they've sped up anyway. Uh -huh. yeah. Become more linear and all that. In in coaching, I, I you know it's what you over time come up with your like your best lines, the ones that are most helpful to those you're trying to help. And one of them is I, a lot of writers separate character from plot. So then they end up, you know, pushing their character around. There's no character for mm -hmm. plot. And the, the, the idea is that the plot's character placed under escalating pressure. And that invites the two to, to marry. Um, but a lot of things, you know, where it's, I've got a description. Isn't that separate? No, it's not. Plot. No, it's not separate. I, mean, I read visually and I want to see what's going on, you know. Yeah. And I want to be able to place a person, a character in a situation and in the setting enough so that I understand where that, I don't understand, that doesn't make sense. Where is that taking place? What happened to that? You know, it's like, I can't picture it. And I don't know if everyone, I assume everyone does not read that way. I mean, I have to assume that, right? Do you guys want to read that way or not? <laughs> no, most people need an orientation. Don't yeah. they need to be oriented. But I think it's, for me, I think it's more than that. I think- Yes, I, but you don't, what you were talking about Matt was the orientation matters. Yeah, all the stuff that's in your head. Mm -hmm. Fiction is not film. You I mean you can't possibly mm -hmm. on a given scene right. give all the information. No, we don't even enough of it. And at the same time, physical orientation is important, especially the more fantastic the story. Yeah. And I've seen the reverse uh, situation where you know I've, it's called like the white room syndrome, right? So you. You're like, where are they? What, what, like, what's what places? I have no idea where this takes place. I have no idea where where. But, but fiction is all about, as far as I can tell, it's paradoxical. So we're talking about the difference between effective confusion and ineffective confusion, right? <laughs> and intentional too. Intentional. Yeah. Well, that's true. Is this intentional or not? Yeah. It's yeah. intentional. That's okay, as long as you don't do it all the time. As, as long as it's working. I mean, it can be intentional, but be an intentional I hate, I hate experimental fiction unless I don't notice it. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Yeah, because I've read things. I, I've read books, and I didn't realize till after the fact, oh, my God, that was first per, uh, that was uh, present tense or whatever, you know. Or there was dialogue, you know, uh, punctuation, uh, not, you know, quotation marks. But, you know, but if I ha if it jumps out at me, it drives me nuts, you know. Yeah. Oh, because it's, it's, you're trying to be experimental. Like, eh. The mechanics of it, the author's hand. Well, we that, but some people really love that kind of writing. And yeah. 
and I've got a whole couple of generations of students who imprinted on Star Wars and that log roll at the beginning. Yeah. No, you don't need to do that. You could have skipped <laughs> all of that and got right into the movie. We would yeah, have been um, just as happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we're coming up on uh, almost yeah. nine o'clock. Um, so, um, unless there's anything else, uh, I think we're going to wrap up. So, uh, we've been uh, talking with uh, Nalo Hopkinson and Bruce McAllister. Uh, Here's their books. The plug. The plug. Yeah, one of one of their many many uh, creative works. Uh, links are uh, down below in the YouTube description uh, to buy to purchase their stuff, their bios. Check out their work. Uh, very very talented people. Um, super happy to have you both here uh, tonight. This was great, and uh, thanks to everyone who's. Uh, who's tuned in uh, live and, and not live on YouTube. Um, yeah, we've, uh, as we said earlier, we've, we've reached, uh, you know, a literal global audience and it's really, it's really amazing. And uh, we're super excited about that. So thank you guys for being part of that. Yes. Thank you to everyone who donated, et cetera. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see you all next month. So uh, everyone take care. So uh, Nalo and Bruce, just hang on. We're going to, uh, hang out in the green room, but I'm going to end the live broadcast. So, uh, all right, everybody, have a good night. We'll, uh, Thank you all for your comments. Thanks. Wonderful. Yes. Comments. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Yeah. All right. Thank good night. You.